Amazing, those guys can play just as good on a stringed instrument. I can't play one, they can play two, that's not fair, okay. Probably hard work, I guess that's the difference, okay. Uh, but it's great, uh, great to be back. And I just uh, had two weeks that uh, the Lord opened up in the state of Ohio, and both of them were places I've sensed uh, that um, God has been working, and I think uh, opportunities to connect with people, and we had a wonderful time there. Uh, anybody here from the state of Ohio, I guess the uh, Daily Owns are, so they're going to get this. Everywhere you go, you kind of have to learn the culture. Culture's a little bit different, and you'll learn this. When you go, there's just different culture. Now, I learned this about Ohio. Now, I grew up in Chicago, as most of you know, six, six years old and on, and in Chicago, it's all about professional sports. It's like Cubs, White Sox, well, kind of, and uh, Bears, Bulls, and the Blackhawks, it's huge. And when it comes to college sports, Fighting Illini, have you ever met a fan? I haven't. Okay, but um, uh, who cares? Northwestern, you know, there's just no college team that captures the state. So like um, when it comes to college football, uh, there's really not anybody dominating. It's all NFL, which is the Bears, which is pretty sad too. But anyway, uh, now in Ohio, I discovered something. I mean, it's all college football. Ohio State fans are kind of like Green Bay Packer fans. I'm talking about they're all in. Don't ever tell them you're a Michigan fan down there. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, it's pretty serious stuff. And uh, so I discovered that pretty fast. And I learned that the NFL is nothing. I mean, after all, of course, if it was the Cleveland Browns, that would be nothing for me too. But, uh, uh, but uh, uh, so interesting. You just kind of learn a little bit about the state and a little bit of state pride down there. Uh, in a good way, and so certainly enjoyed being there. Two ministries in Newark, and then also in Urbana, and a couple of Christian schools down there, and I'll tell you perhaps a little bit about the week as the message goes, but uh, some of the weeks there, but a wonderful time there, and, and it's good to be back though. We've got the opening here of school, and uh, I know that uh, tomorrow and today as the freshmen come in certainly is an exciting time. And I have vested interest in this freshman class, just so you know. So, um, uh, so as I am preaching here this morning, I hope that you'll get all right and ready to meet them and to be encouragement. In fact, uh, I think I'm going to be in trouble now because I've got somebody in the college, I've got a spy in the college office now. So if you're in trouble, I'll know within seconds, okay? So, um, and then I've got, uh, I got two spies in the student body. No, I'm just teasing. But um, so um, uh, uh, anyway, just behave, okay? So... Um, but uh, in, uh, uh, in what I'd like us to do, go to the book of Isaiah, if you would please. Isaiah chapter number 30. Isaiah chapter number 30, and we're going to be looking at just a verse of Scripture here. We'll also touch on a few others. Now, obviously, as we come back, this is, a, uh, we, uh, we all know, it's kind of a unique opportunity for us to get back, minus the seniors. And uh, I remember when I went into college as a freshman, you probably remember this too, I was like a deer in headlights. And when I got there as a freshman, uh, you know what I began? I began to look at the juniors and seniors, and I thought they were like unbelievable. You know what I'm talking about? Super Christians. I thought, man, they are just on fire for God. And, and many of them were. And uh, I had great respect for them, and I began to hang around them, and I asked them a lot of questions. And uh, I was kind of just uh, caught with the aura. I mean, they just seemed to have it together. Uh, they just knew what to do. They seemed to be very disciplined, good students. I'm talking about the, the leadership. And, and um, now, I don't know about you. That's how I came as a freshman. I just viewed them as like almost perfect. Okay, I'm sure they weren't, but I, uh, a lot of things about them. I mean, some of them uh, especially had a real fire in their soul, and I was stirred by that. And then I became a junior. And when I became a junior, you know what I thought? I don't think I'm on their level. You know what I'm talking about? How many juniors and seniors can I relate with that? Okay. In other words, you were caught by the aura of the juniors and seniors, and now you're here. And uh, the point is, 
Whether you like it or not, and I'm not saying you sophomores don't have this, sophomores do have some uh, obviously influence just by virtue of being here a year. Uh, you don't have as much influence as you think you do, but that's all right, okay, that's why you're called a sophomore. But, uh, uh, but uh, for you juniors and seniors, uh, you're coming to the point now where you're the leaders. You're the people, uh, how many juniors do we have in here, by the way? Juniors, okay, you can put your hands down. First year seniors, okay, second year seniors, okay, there we are. Okay. Yeah, obviously, you seniors have uh, been around at least a year, some of you too, so you, you've already got the drill down. But the point is this, simply this. The way you view the juniors and seniors when you got here is the way the freshmen will view you. Now, I say this every year, perhaps it's already been said uh, brother, by Brother Weber, but uh, when you were getting the leader, leadership, leadership is not necessarily a position. Leadership is more influence. Influence. I've watched this over the years. Sometimes a guy comes in and just by virtue of his personality and his magnetism or whatever, his, just his, his skill set, uh, you begin to notice he has influence. Sometimes people start dressing like him, talking like him, uh, mimicking other things about them. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if the influence is good, that's great. But if it's not so good, that's not great. So all I'm simply saying is, your leadership, you may say, well, preacher, I don't, have an, I don't really have a position here. You might, you might not. I don't know. Some of you obviously do. But even if you don't have a so-called position, you have the potential of influence. And the truth is, you're going to influence somebody. And uh, that influence will obviously be either good or it will be bad. So understanding here these few days, one of our burdens is for you to begin to get burdened for the fact that you're going to be in a certain sense, whether you like it or not, in a sense where you are influencing other young people. And you'll influence them for, for good or for bad. You'll influence them toward faith or you'll influence them toward unbelief. And we're going to talk about that a little bit here in Isaiah chapter number 30. And we're going to look at verse number 15. And uh, what I'd like us to think about here just for a quick moment is to understand a little bit of the scenario. Obviously, uh, the southern kingdom is in trouble. Uh, they are in military trouble. And uh, they uh, evidently had been sending some uh, ambassadors down to Egypt trying to get some military help. And that's being addressed here. And of course, God is trying to deal with them spiritually uh, through the prophet. And I want us to look at verse number 15, because verse number 15 kind of epitomizes the message that Isaiah is giving here, trying to really challenge the, 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 the Judah to go to the right solution. And uh, we'll find out what they did with that solution. Verse 15, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest ye shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. And notice the response. And ye would not. In fact, we find out in verse number 1 of chapter number 31, they went down to Egypt for help. And they trusted in horses and chariots. In other words, they went to the arm of flesh. Uh, they tried to solve the problem with their own resources and their own abilities and now I know I'm not preaching anything new to you, but I want us to just, uh, just think for a moment. It says, in returning and rest you shall be saved. Now I think we all recognize the saved there is delivered. It's talking about a deliverance, obviously from a foreign military power. Now let's just put ourselves, if we can, in our own day, I think we all recognize, I feel it from time to time, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm really not asking you to do that. I'm asking a rhetorical question. But how many of you, as you went home this particular summer, felt the battle in a more serious manner than you do when you're here? And the truth is, I think most of you say, yeah, I do. I go to the workplace, I feel the battle. Sometimes even in the youth group, you feel the battle. 
And sometimes you get out in the world or even in places that um, uh, have the world's influence and you begin to, you've begun to sense the battle. And I don't know about you, friends, but if you're not careful, guess what? You can become influenced the wrong way. I, 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 I can't remember who taught it to me, but it's a real simple truth. It's like this. You're either influencing or you are being influenced. So it's like this. When you go home, you're either influencing people toward what you think they ought to go or somebody's influencing you. And so really what I am burdened about each of you is that uh, to some degree that you'll say, Preacher, I want to be, I really do want to be an influencer and obviously be influenced in the right direction. Uh, so, uh, so this uh, particular text here tells us how to be delivered. Now some of you went home this summer and I'm hoping things went well. I'm hoping for many of you, obviously by your singing that is a very good sign that many of you had a good summer. I can see that. But perhaps you went home and it wasn't a stellar summer. Maybe it was a sense where you didn't feel like you had any major failure in your life, but you just really, uh, you didn't really have a move forward and felt yourself just battling to keep the ground you had. Now, I would assume if I asked for heads uh, bowed and eyes closed and asked for a raise of hands, that some of you would say, yeah, that's me. I mean, it was just, it was just sheer just grit to try to hang on to where I was. And maybe even you felt like you slipped back a few steps, maybe not into deep issues, but you felt yourself getting a little cold, your time with God becoming a little more predictable, and as a result, um, you come to school and you realize, man, I need, I need something. Well, here's what I want you to see. God says, here's what you do. In returning and rest, you shall be delivered. Now, what does that mean? Well, returning, friends, I think we all understand what returning is. Returning is getting back to where we, are, where we, where we were, returning to that position where we were blessed. Now, that may be involved getting something right. I hope for many of you that's not the case. It may be just uh, your personal time has slipped, or, or maybe it's that you've had your personal time, but it's just gotten very uh, predictable and very dry in a certain sense, and, and maybe not ministering to you. And you know that when you left, that things were going a little bit better than they're going now. Okay, so here's what God is saying here. What you need to do is you need to get back to where you were. Now you say, preacher, how do we get back there? Well, obviously there's certain things that uh, are important to simply uh, spending time with God if you're not, etc. Some things are fairly obvious. But the f word I want you to focus on in returning, and here it is, rest, we shall be delivered. Now the word rest really has, again, the, uh, the idea of inactivity. Now, we have to understand uh, literally the idea of rest. You, you, you guys understand rest. In fact, college students love rest. You know what I'm talking about? It's just like we're all into rest. We're all into sleep-in mornings. How many would admit you had at least one sleep-in morning, okay, over the summer? Okay, that's good. We wanted you to do that. And uh, uh, you get to do that since that doesn't usually happen in college. Okay, so I get that. Okay, rest. We all understand what rest is. But here's the idea. The idea is not inactivity in the sense of laying on a bed and going to sleep. The idea is and inactivity of flesh dependence. In other words, rest is the idea of not attempting to solve the problem through fleshly means or through human intimidation or through human manipulation. Now, I've said this years ago, and I, perhaps maybe you've heard me say it, but spiritual people supplicate and carnal people manipulate. It's like this, young ladies, there are going to be someday you'll be in a position where your husband is going to make a decision you're not going to agree with. Now, you've got a decision. You can get on your knees and talk to Almighty God about it, or you can put pressure on Him and manipulate Him to try to get Him to do what you think you, He ought to do. Now, the danger in manipulation is you might be wrong. Number two, it is never good for a man to lose his leadership and to cave into pressure when uh, 
uh, he's being pressured by a, uh, an inferior. I know not an inferior, that's the wrong word. Somebody that is, uh, sorry, I don't want you ladies to stone me, but you know what I'm talking about. Somebody who is in a uh, uh, position of um, submission in that position. Again, it's not that uh, the wife can't say things, that she can't utter warnings. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about human manipulation. And I will tell you, we live in a culture that is very good about people who are subordinates, maybe that's the word to use, who try to pressure leadership to do what they want them to do. I was talking to a dean of men of another school, and he told me this. He said, um, I will give a kid's demerits on the campus. This was several years ago. He said, by the time I get back to the dean's office, my phone is ringing. Now, that's amazing to me, just absolutely amazing. You know who's calling, don't you? Uh, yeah, mom and dad are calling. And, uh, of course, going to defense. Now, I'm going to tell you, what I see that is, that's manipulation. And I will tell you, you can do that. You can pull strings. I, when I was going through college, there was a little philosophy, and it's probably not a good one. If you have strings, pull them, okay? Uh, that's probably not a good, that's probably not a good philosophy. There are a lot of things I learned in college from other students that I realized, yeah, that was a very collegiate, okay? That was about the mentality of a 20-year-old, okay? But um, um, the point is why? Because, friends, it's like this. You want to know that God's will is being done, right? It's like this. If you think, uh, you know, and I realize I was using husband and wife, but I could use any situation. I could use child, mom and dad. Okay, that's where you're living right now. But, uh, or another authority in your life. If you're in a situation where you think they make the wrong decision, it's certainly not wrong to appeal. It's certainly not wrong to give them your heart. But it is always wrong to put pressure. Somebody said, you know what the word submission is? No pressure. So ladies, if you learn this, you know what submission is? No pressure. Guys, when you're under an authority, you know what it is? No pressure. Over the years, I've had guys travel with me, and I will tell you, I have gotten some phenomenal ideas from the guys. Sometimes somebody will come to me and say, you know, why don't you, have you ever considered this? Or have you ever considered the, building the equipment a little bit different? In fact, now we use metal hoops. We used to have wooden hoops. Those metal hoops came because somebody on my team said, I think we can do this better. What about this? We thought about it. We said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. So certainly anybody in authority loves ideas, loves people to come, but I will tell you where any authority, and probably if you've ever been an authority as a room leader, you get this, where you really don't like it is when people start to put pressure on you. Because as a leader, what do you want? You want the freedom to follow God. You want a freedom to follow God. Now obviously, if you're under authority, and authorities tell you what to do, that's a different ballgame. What I'm talking about is being someone who's subordinate and trying to pressure uh, that authority to do what you want them to do. And obviously as an authority, it's like I tell my wife from time to time, I, I say, honey, I'm sorry. I am hardwired to lead. I just have to. <laughs> it's just what God made me to do. And by the way, young ladies, that's what you want the guy to do. <laughs> now hopefully you'll marry a spiritual guy so he's hardwired and he's leading in the right direction. But you know, the point is, um, that's what makes a man is when uh, he's able to lead his, his wife and his kids and lead them into victory without them putting pressure on him to compromise or to do something that uh, is their pressure. So here's my point, friends. Rest is a trusting God. It's trusting God to lead you. It's trusting God uh, to solve the problem. It's, it's supplication. Now, this is not inferring there's no action. Like I said, the action is there's no flesh dependence. 
The inactivity is the flesh is inactive. See, that's the point. And it's just like I've said before, the Spirit-filled life is not passivity, it's not inactivity, it's His activity, okay, through us. So, in returning, the idea is some of you just need to say, I need to get back right with God. I need to return. So, I need to get back spending some time with God. I need to get back. Uh, I need to get some things right that I, I know aren't right in my heart. And maybe you need to get accountable to somebody. Maybe a spiritual struggle. This week we'll be talking, Lord willing, in the, in the services about strongholds. And I'm certainly burdened about the series that God's laid in our heart, my heart, for opening services. And perhaps the Lord will deal with your heart. You're going to have to get. You're going to have to return. You're going to have to get it right. And sometimes that's painful because you got to confess, or you got to get something right, or you got to call your mom and dad. And certainly that happens. And we know with freshmen that's particularly a bigger issue. Many times they're calling home, getting things right. That and the Cold Clash Plus, we've all seen that happen. And some of you that happened in your life, and there was a significant decision in your heart in life. So in returning and rest, what is rest? Rest is trusting God. <laughs> It's totally resting in the fact that He has the power. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. The opposite of that is in verse 31. Look at verse 31, if you will, please, of chapter, uh, chapter not verse 31, chapter 31, verse number 1. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses, and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. And they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord." Now, obviously, the problem was this. They were in a very much of a military situation where they needed deliverance. Uh, they're having uh, foreign military powers, and uh, there's uh, the, the chance that they're obviously going to be deported, and we all know what happened eventually, but they're in, a, they're in a dire situation, and God is trying to give them a solution. Their solution was, our military is no good, let's get some help from Egypt. So they began going down to Egypt for help. Now, the, the, most of you know that Egypt in the Bible is what? It's a type of the world. So it's like this, friends, when you and I go to the world to try to get means from the world to accomplish God's work, the Bible says right here that's what we're doing. Woe unto them. Now, I will tell you about woe. When I read the Bible and see the word woe, uh, you might ask me, what in the world does that mean? And my answer to you would be a highly theological answer. I don't know, but if I were you, I wouldn't want to find out. What do you think? It sounds bad. It really is. A woe is a big deal. So God is saying, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Now, I want you to see something here, because in our day, I believe a lot of young men who mean well are going down to Egypt for help. You see, pragmatism, that's why I'm so big on this, pragmatism starts now. If you manipulate and you know how to fleshly make things happen to get your leadership to do what you want them to do, you're already into pragmatism. You are into flesh dependence. That's why I dealt with it. Because you're at the point right now where... Um, uh, you need to learn to get a hold of God. You need to learn how to supplicate. And uh, need to get a hold of God to do, doing the miraculous. So going down to Egypt for help, they were going down obviously to the world, getting worldly mechanisms, worldly methods, in order to accomplish God's work. Now look at this verse just a few verses down because it's stunning. I want you to see this. Um, Got to get the exact, okay, verse number three. Now the Egyptians are men, he reminds them, and not God. You know what I would say to that statement? Like, uh, <laughs> but he had to make that statement. The very fact he had to make the statement that the Egyptians are men and not God means they were obviously trusting them in a way you would trust a divine being. Totally mistraced trust. Look what God says. And their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall 
that's the Egyptians. And he that is holpen shall fall down, that's the children of Israel, the Judah. And they shall all fail together. Now here's my point. Today, it would not be hard at all for you on the internet, or even just meeting with young men your age who are heading for the ministry, and do you know what would dominate the conversation? How to build a church. Oh, you say, preacher, that's good. That's a great conversation. Well, that is a great conversation. But you know what would dominate that? Websites, design, Twitter accounts, how to use Facebook. And they would basically be talking about methodology. Now, understand, methodology is a part of life. You can't, you can't do ministry without methodology. In other words, it, what I call methodology is application. Okay, but the point is this. Methodology that is not rooted in theology has got a real tendency to be errant in its focus. So the point is, friends, they've gone down to Egypt for help. And so we're talking about going to Madison Avenue. Now, there's nothing wrong with website. Nothing I mentioned is inherently in itself wrong. Obviously, there's pitfalls of the social media world. We understand that. We talk about that from time to time. But we understand in and of itself, uh, we recognize the mechanisms, okay? We understand that those aren't in and of themselves sinful and evil. They obviously have a lot of things that can't. But here's the point. When pragmatism takes over, you become dependent on those. I, years ago, I went out to eat. Brother Schultz knew somebody. I sat down to eat. And um, we talked, we're going to talk about youth ministry. And I didn't think about it until the thing was over. But as we walked out the door, Brother Schultz leaned over to me. He said, all he wanted to talk about was methodology, and all you wanted to talk about was theology. <laughs> and I will tell you, friend, you give me a room of youth pastors, and I'm not going to talk about big balls and cheering and graphics and websites. I'm not talking about any of that. You know what I'm going to talk about? Theology. Now, you hear me and do not miss this. i got Brother Bosler in here, so I want to hit both ears wide open on him because I'm preaching to him right now. And that is this. I know he agrees with me, so I'm going to get an amen out this one, at least silently. Okay, but anyway, here it is. Minutemen is not pr programmatic or pragmatically driven. Minutemen, the secret of Minutemen has nothing to do with our program. It has everything to do with the theology. And I believe that with all of my heart. The theology may change, and one day, who knows, there some of that methodology, or we may change, the program may change, but I will tell you, the moment Minutemen is no longer a theology-driven ministry, it is over. It's over. Because the moment you turn to Egypt for help, you are in trouble. Now, the point is, we use graphics. I think Mr. Bosler is one of the best out there. The websites he does, the graphics he does, second to none. I mean, he does a great job. But I will tell you, I know him and I know myself. We're not dependent on it. We're going to do the best we can, but we are depending on theology. Could I say this, that our practice comes out of theology. In other words, we're trusting God to lead, but we're trusting God to do the life-changing work. Now, I, uh, I think you're living in a world, for instance, I recently had um, Brother Ingram sent me a link to a podcast of a well-known um, young, you know, younger leader in the progressive movement. And uh, they started with, pod the podcast was about church growth. I can't remember what segment was like, how to church bring your church from this many to this many. And I never even listened to the podcast. Because the first 10 minutes they gave you, I can't remember, it might have been the first top five or the top ten. I can't remember now how many it was. But it was like the top ten lines from Napoleon Dynamite. Now you say, preacher, 
uh, what's Napoleon done? Well, I hope as a BCM student that's what you're saying. I really do hope what you're saying. Well, I had to do some research myself. And it's a movie. It's certainly not the worst thing Hollywood's put out. But in there, some of the lines they thought were really funny were lines about picking up girls. And I will tell you, several of the lines I felt were over the line. They were just completely inappropriate to, for a preacher to even mention. And they weren't funny to me. To me, they were tragic. Can I say the lines came right out of Egypt? And my burden is this, friends. I'm nothing against the gentlemen, the, the two guys that were on there doing it. I think they think they're doing a great thing. I think they're as sincere as they can sincerely be. But I will tell you, friend, Egypt, if you go down to Egypt to help in any measure, it won't work because God simply is going to say this, you're, not, you're going to fail and Egypt's going to fail you. There'll be a two-way failure. It's going to come. It's like this, friends. If I were to ask you young men this, I'm going to give you two possibilities and you pick one. One possibility is you're going to pastor a mega church of 4,000, be well-known, speak all over the country, but your church will be one generational. You'll send out very few full-time workers, very few missionaries. It'll be one generation undone, one undone. Or you could pastor a church of 500. Uh, there'd be solid growth. It'd be slow, incremental. There'd be solid growth. But you would literally, literally within two generations, you would, uh, you would win. Uh, 100,000 people would come to Jesus Christ as a direct result of your ministry touching lives who touch lives who touch lives who touch lives. Okay, which one would you pick? The 4,000 or the 500? Now, the truth is you're tempted to pick the 4,000. You know why? Because that's why you're living. The other one, you're not going to know about until you get to heaven. My point, friends, is simply this. I like what one gentleman was talking about, a young guy and the direction he was going, and he said to me very sincerely, he said, he's one generational. He's just going to be one generational. It's like this, friends, and perhaps I can help you with this. I know there's a pastor who's been working on a, a message, and some of you, I'm sure, are going to hear parts of it. But um, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, and... Uh, just uh, not too long ago, uh, evangelist Billy Graham died. Let me just simply say that every soul that came to Jesus through Billy Graham, I am grateful for. I thank the Lord the gospel's powerful. And in the book of Philippians, even if a guy who is trying to harm the apostle Paul is preaching the gospel, Paul says, go for it because the gospel's powerful. So that's just where we are on the thing. Now, I, I've read several things about Billy Graham, and uh, one of the things I, I, I noticed about him is he began his ministry coming right out of revival. There was a meeting in the San Bernardino Mountains, mountains with him and Bill Bright uh, back, I, don't, I can't even remember the decade, probably back 40s, I'm guessing, where they had an all-night prayer meeting and God showed up. And I will tell you, out of that prayer meeting, there was fire. Bill Bright began Campus Crusade. It was not long before the entire UCLA football team were believers in Jesus Christ. The USC football uh, coach called down to US, UCLA and said, what's going on down there? Whatever you want, we want it to. Send Campus Crusade up here. Now, this is years ago. Now, all I'm simply saying is those movements were spawned in revival. And then Billy, began, Billy Graham began those campaigns, and they just began to take off. If you read the history of him, it was remarkable. Thousands turning out to his tabernacles. It was like the old days. It was like uh, the Billy Sunday, who was just a couple decades before him. And it was clearly what we would say was a move of God. You cannot put in any other frame on it. It was a move of God. But in the late 1950s, a calculated decision was made. 
And the decision was, we are not going to separate with liberals in, in our mass evangelism so that, even though we don't agree with the liberals, we're not going to associate with them because if we uh, disassociate with them, uh, because if we associate with them, we'll have more pre people to, to preach to and they'll get saved and maybe the liberals will get saved. I don't know of one liberal who, by the way, got saved. Now that sounds good on paper, doesn't it? Sounds like really good on paper. So in 1957, and this is what began the big deal, while Billy Graham was preaching, on his platform was a man by the name of Nels Ferrey, a uh, notorious liberal, and as I understand it, he did not believe in the virgin birth. I believe that Jesus is the son of a German soldier, something like that. I, I, I don't have the exact quote with me, but the point is this, friends. That is when I believe revival left mass evangelism. Now I'm going to say this, I can't necessarily totally prove it, but I do think it's provable. And that is, Billy Graham took revival out of mass evangelism. Sherwood Wirt, who worked for Billy Graham for decades, uh, attended the Saskatoon, Saskatchewan revival in 1971. He actually attended it in Winnipeg. It had already spread down to Winnipeg. How many are familiar with the 1971 Saskatoon, Saskatchewan revival? And I will say this to all of you Americans in here, the last citywide revival in North America was not in the United States. It was in Canada. And it literally rocked the city. The chief of police said he had a line of people in, and he was not a believer, a line of people in confessing crimes that they had not got caught for. He said, I, he said, I believe in revival. He was not a believer, but he says, I believe in revival. Okay, because that never happened before. Seven-week revival started the first night with 125. Before it was over, seven weeks later, they were filling an auditorium twice a day, I think, with 2,000 people, each service. Uh, just rocked the city. Uh, well, anyway, Sherwood Work came down to, some of you heard this on the video a couple weeks ago, came down. To the, or came up to the Winnipeg Revival, and God just moved that night. And it talked about how people kept coming forward and the, had to keep clearing the pews out. And uh, Sherwood Wirt basically came to the pastor, Pastor Bill McLeod, who was leading the revival, who was the pastor from Saskatoon, and basically said, I need, this is, I need revival. And he basically went home. God revived him, his wife, his home. And, and here's what he said to him. He said, I've worked for the Billy Graham Association, and I can't remember how long he had. And here's what he said. We have never seen revival. This is revival. He said, we have never seen revival. And I'm just going to tell you, young person, I'm just going to tell you this right now. Compromise takes revival out of evangelism. So I want to ask you a question. If he had not taken revival out of evangelism, don't you think there would have been a whole lot more people saved? <laughs> It, the meetings might have been smaller, but the effect would have rolled on. He might not have been as famous as he was, but his ministry would have had, probably, I believe with all my heart, way more lasting. Long. Because the revival's kind of, late 50s, the revival left. Now, they have mass evangelists, and there are many, many evangelists you've never heard of. Well, Brother Himes, the older Brother Himes has heard of them. Merv Rosell, Jack Schuler, and there were a host of others I'm forgetting at the moment. I'm telling you, Billy Graham was just one of many. And they were just rolling through the 40s and 50s. With unbelief. There were a group of Baylor students that are the age of Alex Rohoff and some of you seniors who were preaching to thousands of people every week. They were college students. And literally mass uh, revivals all across the South. That continued into the early 50s before that thing watered down. 
Now, my point is, friends, the 40s isn't a long time ago, and there was a move of God. What happened? I believe what happened is, slowly but surely, pragmatism came into the mix. And that's exactly what we're dealing with here. See, pragmatism is going down to Egypt for help. Again, it's not wrong. I mean, we have banners, we have graphics, we have wonderful brochures, we have great websites, we have all that. But I tell you right now, we are not depending on any of that to change anybody. See, it's, it's theology. It's the walk of faith. It's trusting God. And my concern, friend, even with some of the young men that are out there building churches and evangelists, see a lot of people saved. you know what I think they're doing? I really do believe this. They've taken revival out of mass evangelism. So they're building a church with a lot of converts, but I do not know that they will ever have revival in those churches. That's my concern. And um, I think uh, as a young man, you have to grapple through this. Because I will tell you, the pragmatic way is easier in some senses. Just go down to Egypt for help. Adjust, tweak your standards, make it comfortable for people to come to church. Now, I'm not saying every ministry out there is totally ineffective. Here's the point. You always have to understand, wherever there is faith, God honors faith. I could take you to some churches, you're thinking, wow, this is way off the cliff. But yet there's faith, there's a, in one of the uh, part of the church, there's faith. Now you say, how do you, how do you, just, do, do, do you justify that? Or how do you package that? Now, I'm going to say more about this in the opening services. But in Matthew 16, uh, you have Peter who has two streams in his life. Jesus says to him, who do men say that I am? And what did Peter say? Thou art the, and what did Jesus say? Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. So if flesh and blood didn't reveal it to Peter, who did? And the answer is, well, it says the Father, the Holy Spirit did through the, that's just the Christ. Now, that's a stream of God. Seconds later, Jesus is saying to Peter, get thee behind me. Same guy. I have heard people, particularly generations ago, but even recently, say, how can we be wrong and win so many people to Jesus? And you know what I say to that? You could be really wrong and win people to Jesus. Because of dual streams. That's what the old timers called it, dual streams. In fact, I submit to you that all of you have dual streams. <laughs> you have a stream of God, and you have a stream of darkness. And you know what preaching is? Confronting wrong thinking, confronting strongholds, however you want to package it. We're going to talk about it next week. Confronting the dual streams. Because I don't know about you, I know that the thing that hinders me is where I don't think correctly. Where I have a stream of wrong thinking. It comes from the enemy. And I don't know about you, I want that to get diminished if not totally gone. Because it never helps us in the long haul. And all I'm simply saying, friends, so you can go out, I'm not saying every ministry is totally worthless. I'm just simply saying, oh yeah, they're preaching the gospel. There's a stream, okay, God's blessing the gospel. But there's other things they may be doing that diminish the possibility of revival because Satan has deceived them. Are you seeing it? Dual streams. And so you have to recognize how much of a stream of Egypt can you tolerate and still have revival? And the answer is, you better get rid of it all. Because he's saying, woe to you if you go down to Egypt for help. You trust in the horses, the chariots. He's basically saying, listen, and we're going to get to this point here if I can in the minute. He's basically saying, listen, I can overcome the enemy. I can do this. I've done it many times, but yet you are trying to go down to Egypt. You're sending groups down there trying to get them as a military help to you. You believe somehow that their horses are spirit and their men are supernatural and that they can deliver you from the coming invasion. And he's basically saying it's misplaced because I'm against you. I will be against. They will fail you and you will fail. 
And I will tell you, friends, you can go down to Egypt for help, but you mark my words, it will fail you in accomplishing revival. So the trust is in God. That's where you, as a college student now, you're learning. How much do you trust God? And how much do you rely on the flesh? Some of you rely on the flesh. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm trying to help you. We are absolutely passionate here with helping you understand your flesh dependence because it's killing you. And when you manipulate instead of supplicating, you are setting yourself up for pragmatism. You're setting yourself up, I can do this. I can change this. I can make this happen. And really, I, I want you to understand sincerely that, I, I, I don't know, I think of so many times, I, I think of one graduate many years ago, um, his wife, I think, was talking to my wife and said, I was really burdened about my husband in a certain area, and I wanted to say something, I just didn't sense I should, and, but she said, I really prayed about it. And that young man came to a decision that was unbelievable. Supernatural. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you think that wife is going to be helped in her faith or hurt in her faith? She's going to be helped in her faith. Why? Because she learned how to get a hold of God. God, you got to do something. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong at times to speak up, but it is always wrong to pressure. It's always wrong to manipulate. It is always wrong to be flesh dependent. It is always wrong to go down to Egypt for help. And what I'm trying to help you understand is streams of flesh in your heart sometimes get really disguised up. And you don't realize that that, that, that that flesh dependence, that Egypt dependence is, is there a little bit. And it's like God says, I'm not going to help you. I'm, it's woe. I'm, I'm, you are, it's going to fail you and you are going to fail. It's not going to work. So God is saying in returning and rest, you're going to be delivered. In other words, you've got to completely become inactive when it comes to flesh dependence. Now the next one helps us understand we're not talking about passivity or inactivity. The next phrase and I was hoping to preach half the message on it. We didn't get there. Okay, here's what it says. And in quietness, quietness and confidence shall be what? Your what? Now, we're not talking about physical strength. Supernatural strength. Now, how do you get supernatural strength? How you're delivered? Not rest. I mean, rest. Resting in God. Taking a complete rest from flesh dependence. Now, how... Uh, how do you get strength? God said quietness. It's the idea of peace, tranquility. It, it goes along with the idea of rest, but it is a different word. Now, here's the amazing thing. Uh, I heard a quote years ago that helps us with this. George Mueller put it this way. When anxiety begins, faith ends. When faith begins, you want to know the end of the quote? Some of you do. Faith begins, anxiety ends. What he's saying is quietness is the absence of anxiety. In other words, what is anxiety? Anxiety is a lack of trust that God can do it. And I'm telling you, friends, uh, I'm still on a journey myself. Have you ever noticed that the flesh, you get this thing, oh, I came to BCM, I get this flesh dependence, bad, bad, bad. Have you ever kind of noticed that flesh dependence is your default? <laughs> Just kind of where you go? That you have to fight flesh dependence? You know, I've done the ministry for 34 years. I still have to say, no, 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 it's not the flesh. No, that's not going to work. No, it's God. And we all do. See, quietness is the idea of there's rest in your soul. Man, there's no anxiety. You're trusting God. Confidence is literally the idea of trust. Of course, it's the, uh, the objective side of trust, but the idea is trust, trusting in, in confidence in God. That's where your strength comes from. It's supernatural. It's God. It's God coming down enabling. 
Now, I'll be honest with you, friends. I feel like, you know, I'm still growing, and I'm just going to conclude with this. But um, certainly, I, I will say this summer, I've, you know, no one, we're all growing and all got issues to grow. But this summer has been one of the greatest summers of my life. I, I've just been thrilled, and I'm going to say more about it in other chapels, but I've been, just been thrilled with some of the things the Lord's taught me, and I'll, I'll share those later. But I was up at 10,000 feet on the Grand Mesa. Anybody know where the Grand Mesa is in Colorado? It's right there by Grand Junction. Okay, it's a beautiful plateau there. Of course, uh, Brother Did, you've been up there, haven't you? Yeah, just great. Up there, uh, you're at 10,000 feet, can't see any mountains because you're so up so high, and, and beautiful lakes. And um, Anyway, I was up there at this uh, camp. In fact, his dad was there, Brother Ditch's dad. And he, um, um, we were having this camp, and uh, I was preaching about 80 kids. And uh, I don't know how to explain it. I, my style is not concerned about results, early part of the week. I was preaching, and there weren't a lot of results, let's just be honest. They weren't responding very much at all. And I got burdened about it, and uh, I even had a wonderful conversation with some of the men there, and I, they, they came to me with some of their burdens, and I had a wonderful opportunity to just encourage them about prayer and what it's doing in my own heart. And, but anyway, long story. I don't know, about Thursday, God began to give a growing confidence. I'm going to break this thing through. I'm going to break it through. I didn't know what it looked like. It always looks different, and it always looks the same. I don't know, I'll explain that, but it's really the truth. And so, um, came into Friday, and really, again, there was some movement, not a lot, but there's some. I mean, there's good things happening, but it was, not, it was certainly not a majority of the 80 kids, not even close. So, I remember it was uh, Friday night, and uh, the Lord led. I preached the 0-100. Many of you know that message, and Finished the message, and I said, if, if God's touched your heart, you made a decision for Jesus this week, you want it to last, come forward. Well, I realized there might have been some peer pressure, but almost the whole clamp cleared out. There's like two kids left, <laughs> and they're the kids that are clueless. You know, I'm talking about junior high kids. But anyway, and so, uh, what are these kids doing? Okay, he just preached the message. Oh, he did? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you work with junior highs, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so they're cleared out. This, I mean, this whole uh, front's filled. And, and I said, okay, let's, uh, I, I let them pray for a while, and then I said, okay. We're going to have now, we're going to have verbal prayers, corporate prayer. I taught them a corporate prayer meeting very quickly. And um, on those moments, I don't know how to explain it. There's something inside of me that you have to fight because inside of you, you want to manipulate it. And then at that point, I have to say, now, God, you have to do it because I can't do it. I've told them what to do, and if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. Well, it was slow. It was slow. All of a sudden, somebody prayed, and somebody else prays, and then somebody starts praying, and it's a crack in their voice. Then somebody else starts praying, and they start weeping. I don't know, we went 15, 20 minutes, and I felt I, I, that's all I probably should do under the leadership. And so I turned it over to the gentleman that was in charge. He's a classmate of mine from 1982, so we're good friends. And I, I'll tell you, he, he, he did exactly what, the, what the, I knew what, what needed to be done. It was, to me, remarkable. No communication, but clearly God led him. He said, we can't late. He said, we're supposed to go down and have campfire service. We can't late. He said, we got to keep going. That prayer meeting went for over an hour. There were three things that characterized that prayer meeting. Somebody who listened to the podcast heard me say this already. Number one, cries of dependence. God, I've tried. I can't. God, help me. And then the second thing was brokenness over sin. I mean, I was amazed. Kids just started weeping. Oh, God. And they'd name their sin. It was really remarkable. Just sobbed away to Jesus. It's kind of fun to watch. It really is. They're broken. You know God's meeting with them. The Lord is nigh unto them that have a broken heart. God's all over those moments. And the third thing was, toward the end of the prayer meeting, you know what happened? They started to pray for the lost. Oh, my co-worker's going to hell. I've been, God, I haven't had any guts. Give me, you know, that kind of thing. 
Man, I think we finished that prayer meeting an hour and a half later and we walked out of there. And I will tell you, some of those people were stunned. Now, I've never lost the awe of it. <laughs> I still walk out and say, God, that was unbelievable. I think I could do this the rest of my life. <laughs> but the point is, friends, it wasn't websites that did that. It wasn't graphics that did that. It wasn't big balls that did that. It wasn't program that did that. It was God. And he was the only resource we had. I didn't have any other resource. I will tell you, friends, I realize this. I can hang around teenagers, but I'm not Mr. Personality. I'm not Jim Shetler, okay? And I don't say that in a negative way. Thank God Jim Shetler is Jim Shetler, okay? But the point is, I, that's not my, I, my point is, I don't, I don't have a lot of tricks in my bag. You know what I'm talking about? And God gives people gifts. Thank the Lord for those. Please know I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying when I come to it, I realize I don't have that gift. I got other gifts, but I don't have that gift. And you know what I have to learn? It's God. And the truth is all preachers realize it's God. God gives us a skill set, but it's God. Just two weeks ago, I was in Newark, Ohio. I had 18 kids at camp. A little smaller, isn't it? I've had kids say to me, who travel with me, I can't preach to 18. There's not enough. I can't preach. And my dad taught me something, and I'm going to teach you this. A crowd should never motivate you. The truth motivates you. If you can't preach to three, you can't preach to 3,000. And I will tell you, friends, you ought to preach with the same fervency. Certainly sometimes it's styles a tad different, but there ought to be the same fervency. Why? Because the truth is the same. So 18 kids, same thing. Man, we're on lockdown. <laughs> it's just like nothing happened. Few here, few there. But on uh, Thursday morning, preached on seeking God's face, and there was a break. And most of the kids came to the platform, some of them weeping, because they hadn't been meeting with God. That night, we uh, had a service at the church, and then we went outside for a campfire service, and started a little slow again around the campfire, but pretty soon, testimony after testimony after testimony, went into a prayer meeting, and looked at my watch, it's about an hour. <laughs> 18 kids an hour, 18 kids, this is without adults. Now my point is, friend, it was God. God was clearly there. It was different than the other time. There's something same about it. There's something different about it. <laughs> but my point is this, friends. And we're turning in rest. In other words, it's resting in God. You've got to get it in your soul. Because when you leave here, there's going to be a whole lot of pressure on you to go down to Egypt for help. And trust in horses because they're many, and horsemen because they're very strong. There's a lot of temptation. I'm not talking about from Hollywood. I'm talking about from our world, <laughs> independent Baptists. We've gone down to Egypt for help. And I believe in doing so is why we have not seen a revival yet that has touched a city since 1971. And before that, you'd have to go back to the 40s and early 50s. Revivals that touched the city, like the Billy Graham crusade in, uh, in Los Angeles, where he became well-known. Those were moves of God. You could put nothing else, but God was on it. So here's my point. You say, why did you preach all that? Okay, i got to wind it down. I've gone too long already, but here's the point. There are 25 or so freshmen be coming in here. So i got a question. Do you think the preaching alone is what will bring revival in their life? And the answer is, well, that'll be important and it's essential. But there's something else that's essential. You know what that is? Seeing it modeled in somebody's life. And I will tell you, we're all for preaching here, and we're going to preach, and I hope God will work. 
But I wonder if the greater power is not a roommate who walks with God. A roommate who says, God, my roommate's in trouble. God, I can't do it. God, you've got to do something. God, I'll, whatever you want me to say, I'll say it. Yeah, they don't go down to Egypt for help on that thing. They don't go to flesh dependence. They don't go to manipulation. They don't go to pressure. They get along with God and they supplicate. <laughs> Meet with God. All I'm simply saying, God's trying to help the children of Israel. Hey, listen, you're in a battle. It looks bad. You've got an invading enemy coming in. I feel like that's what the Independent Baptist Movement is. We're about to go. We're about God. You know what God's saying to the Independent Baptist Movement? And really more than that, I'm just using that since we're, that's the world we're in. He's saying, listen, in returning and rest, you'll be delivered. And in quietness and confidence, that's where your strength is. Don't go down to Egypt for help. Don't trust horses. Don't trust chariots. Don't trust your flesh. They're not spirit. They're not divine. They're flesh. Trust me. <laughs> and I will tell you, friend, God wants to use each one of you. You have different giftings, different skill sets. You're not all evangelists. You may not, you, God used you in that way. He made you in a different way. But the point is, God wants to do miraculous things in all of your lives. But you need to be delivered. Some of you need to be delivered from your thought life. Some of you need to be delivered from other uh, laziness. Some of you need to be delivered, you've got character problems. Some of you need to be delivered from your flesh dependence. Some of you need to be delivered from your, your manipulation tendencies. Some of you need to be delivered. And God says it's real simple. Just get back to me and start trusting me to do the changing in your life. And here's how you get supernatural power. You get stop being anxious, stop worrying about it, and trust me and uh, you'll have your strength. But it will be supernatural. It will not be fleshly. And all I want to challenge you with, friends, as we introduce the freshman here in a little bit, you're not, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, we'll never be perfect. But I will tell you, the greatest thing a freshman can see is that when they see the reality of Jesus in our lives, and you know what that includes? When there's failure in our lives, we're first to admit it. I was wrong, I shouldn't have said that. And I will tell you, there's power in that. So this morning, I just want to challenge you with that uh, in returning and rest, you'll be delivered. Rest? Are you at rest? <laughs> you know what rest is? <laughs> total trust in Jesus. It's like this. It's a total trust in Jesus to cleanse me, forgive me, use me, enable me, lead me. It's like He's going to be everything I need today. Wow, are you at rest? Is anxiety gone out of your life? Are you living in trust, confidence, quiet confidence? Not in yourself. God's going to do it again. He did it before. He's going to do it again. And He will. Can I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed.